Courtney Ellis serves in a church in California, and she talks about the pressure that she felt as a Christian in graduate school, uh, getting her master's degree in English. She says, when I attended grad school for English, there were a lot of occasions when my fellow students openly ridiculed the name of Christ. To my great detriment, I stayed silent. I was quite vocal about my belief in Christ at church and with my friends, but I was terrified of what might happen to my reputation if the people in my department found out I believed in Jesus. Most of them were just ignorant about who Jesus is. Several of them had never even met a Christian before and assumed that all Christians were the uneducated, judgmental stereotypes we sometimes see in the media And yet still, I was afraid. She says, as the program went on, I began to feel guiltier for these silences. If I couldn't be obedient to Christ in such a central thing, how would I be able to serve him in other ways? God God was faithful in my rocky road to obedience, she says. Opportunities to speak up for Christ continued to come my way. She says, one day a fellow student asked me flat out, right before class, when many other people were around listening, whether or not I was a Christian. I was at a crossroads. I had a clear decision to make. So I took a deep breath, and with God's help, I said a soft, shaky, yes? The student looked at me for a second, skeptically. Interesting, she said. I always thought that Christians were like circus freaks, but you're actually kind of smart. It was a small step to identify publicly with Jesus Christ in a context where Christianity has a lot of negative baggage. You know, a lot of you can relate to the challenge. It's in your workplace or in your department or in your dorm or with your circle of friends. For some of you, it's even in your own family. Uh, Jesus tells us to be his witnesses, that is to attest to his work on our behalf. And it's a significant part of his call on you. If you are a Christian, he is telling you, I want you to be a Christian publicly, to publicly be my follower and name me as the one who has rescued you. But that can be so intimidating. One sees it much more starkly in in parts of the Muslim world and parts of South Asia, uh, areas where Christians are a very small minority, usually with a very large majority of religious fundamentalists of a different faith. Uh, It was also that way for those early Jewish followers of Jesus. 2,000 years ago in Palestine, we're reading through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, that record of these earliest followers of Jesus who had not even yet been named as Christians. How can we faithfully represent Christ in the face of so much pressure to be passive. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4 this morning. Uh, I'm going to read verses 8 to 13, 18 to 20, and 23 to 31. But the context here is the disciples have performed a miracle. Jesus has performed a miracle through them right in the temple courts. We read about that last week, about the man who couldn't walk, who was being lifted up, and, 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 and Peter had compassion, and Jesus 
healed that man. And so then the disciples have been arrested at this point and dragged before the religious authorities, the Jewish religious authorities, to give account for what they've done. And in verse 8 of chapter 4, we read, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, they were asking, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a crippled man and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. He, that is Jesus, is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And so they then continue the trial, and in verse 18, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And so they threatened them further, and then in verse 23, we continue, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal Perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. What do we see here? We see the offensiveness of this message about Jesus, and yet we see a superhuman boldness come upon the apostles. And we see what it is that can enable us to rise to that very same challenge. First point, we see the offensiveness of this message about Jesus. Note all of the pressure that the religious and political authorities are applying to these Christian followers of, of Jesus, these Jewish Christians. You know, their Jewish leaders are, are applying every pressure possible. They're arresting them. They're threatening them. They're beating them. They're warning them. They're, they're, they're talking about consequences. Uh, 
you know, it's what happens in any family when you start to change the cycle within the family. You start to, to change the dynamic as all of the forces within that family start to conspire to reestablish equilibrium. If you, if you start being the one who doesn't do things like they've always been done, all of the tensions within that family system will focus on you until either you change and get back in line or they change and accept the change circumstance. And that's what's happening here. These are Jews. All of the Christians at this point were Jewish. And they were naming Jesus or or Yeshua as their Messiah, as their rescuer, as the Christ spoken of in the Hebrew Scriptures. And all the powers that be were trying to stop them because it was offensive. It had a very exclusive claim. Did you notice it in verse 12? They said, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. That's saying there's only one Savior. We're all doomed. And the only way out is this Jesus who God has appointed to rescue us through his cross and resurrection. And, and that's, that's offensive because it's so exclusive. It's, it's what Jesus himself said in John chapter 3. You know, the passage we always quote in John 3.16. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And yet Jesus continued and said then, but he who does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. It's an exclusive claim and it's an exclusive claim that, that is offensive in our culture and in theirs. You say, Greg, I hear this, but you know, What you're saying is so exclusive. There can't just be one true religion. Every religion has to have some path to actually get right with God. Uh, It's so much more inclusive that way. And yet, I would push back a little bit because your inclusivism is still a view of religions. And what Jesus was talking about and what the apostles were talking about was a view of religions. And when you say that every religion has to be true, what you're saying is that your particular view of religions is the exclusively true one. And every other view of religions, including that of Jesus and his apostles, is wrong because it doesn't line up with your exclusive view. Your, your inclusivism is just exclusivism uh, uh, with a really good PR job. Because all of us have our own views. And, 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 and the view that you hold means that people who hold a different view are incorrect. And the real question is, which exclusive truth claim about world religions actually opens the door for greater love and greater understanding, particularly toward those with whom you disagree. Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing in Christianity, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that required it in the first place. And when that's the truth, when it's not us working with God to save ourselves, but it's God rescuing us who were helpless, If that's the case, and all we contribute is our own sin, friends, then that's a platform of an exclusive truth claim that leaves you and me in a position to judge no one, no matter how wrong we think they may be. But it gives us a position in which we have been loved when we were God's enemies, so we can then love those who oppose us. Friends, that's the kind of exclusive truth claim that we see at work here, and yet it offends our pride because the gospel of Jesus says that I am so bad that I need a rescuer. And it says that I'm so messed up and so far gone that I can't rescue myself. That offends my pride as a religious person. It offends my pride as a man. And yet Christianity alone has this message that 
that we were created in God's image yet are broken. We're damaged goods and the brokenness is so deep between us and God that only Jesus can heal that gulf. Dorothy Sayers said it this way. She said, I believe it to be a grave mistake to present Christianity as something charming and popular with no offense in it. See, we see the offense of the gospel here. And yet we also see something unexpected because we also see a superhuman boldness come upon the followers of Jesus. Look at this boldness. They've been arrested. They've been brought before the religious and political powers that be. They have been told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they're not offensive. They're not obnoxious. But they also stand their ground and they say, ask who it is that we should obey, whether we should obey you or whether we should obey God himself. You know, it's incredible boldness. In verse 13, the the leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John. And the disciples, you know, when commanded to stop, said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What is boldness? Boldness means actually pulling the trigger. You know, there's a way that that some of us tend personality-wise to do things. Uh, It's sort of the ready, aim, ready, 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 aim, 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 ready, aim. And, And boldness is saying, pull the trigger. It's not a foolishness that says, you know, fire, ready, aim. You know, that just leaves victims. But it is a willingness to to make your decision and then stand through with it whatever the consequences. That's a boldness, a willingness to take risks, a a readiness to act innovatively, a, a confidence in doing what's right, a sense of courage in the face of fear or intimidation. Boldness is stepping deliberately forward in faith, naming the name of Jesus as your rescuer, upsetting the apple cart of your family system, even though it may lead to all of those tensions coming on you, but standing your ground. It's a willingness to take all of the awkwardness off of those around you and put it onto yourself by bringing up the name of your rescuer. Uh, boldness takes action. It pulls the trigger. It loves, but it speaks the, the truth in love. And now, of course, we have to watch out for a kind of false boldness that we have all encountered. It's a false boldness that is not grounded in humility and the Holy Spirit and grace and gentleness and truth of one who has been loved when we were the big, ugly sinners in the room, uh, but rather that boldness that is based in one's sense of pride. I have to be the guy with the answers. I have to be the answer. I have to have the, I have to, I have to know it all. And that kind of person will be bold, but it's not a gospel boldness. Um, Jonathan Edwards, in his Religious Affections, describes it this way. These are his words. He says, There is a false boldness for Christ that only comes from pride. A man may rashly expose himself to the world's dislike and even deliberately provoke its displeasure and yet do so out of pride. True boldness for Christ transcends all. It's indifferent to the displeasure of either friends or foes. Boldness enables Christians to forsake all rather than Christ and prefer to offend all rather than to offend Jesus. Boldness doesn't mean forcing on people conversations that they're not willing to have. It doesn't mean disrespecting people uh, for their convictions, no matter how wrong you think those convictions might be. 
But the real reliable evidence of boldness is when you're speaking the truth and being honest, but doing it with a gentleness and servant-hearted love where you're putting yourself under those around you to help them, to be a resource to them, to encourage them, and instead of lording it over them as if you have all of the answers. I know of no better example than the man I met when I was in college when I myself had just become a follower of Jesus. Um, uh, uh, the first church I was ever a part of was Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. And that's where I experienced my own conversion in undergrad as an architecture student. And one of the elders at that church was a highly respected professor. Uh, his name was Ken Elzinga. I think we have his photo uh, can we get that first image? He is a very humble man, and he would die if he knew that I just put his face on the wall of this sanctuary. But uh, when he was just 26 years old, Ken Elzinga joined the faculty of the University of Virginia, and like a lot of us who have spent time in higher education, Ken felt the pressure to hide his faith in Christ. Uh, at one point, a colleague pulled him aside and warned him uh, very directly that being explicit about his Christian faith would hinder his career, that Jesus was the perfect ticket off the tenure track. Um, Elzinga took these words to heart, and so he tried to navigate the kind of tricky departmental politics of an academic system that already had enough dysfunction of its own. Um, and so sometime later, Elzinga was stunned to see a flyer posted on a bulletin board with his face on it. He had agreed to speak to a campus Christian organization, and they had taken it on themselves to promote it with his face. And this was, this was a long time ago. This was before, you know, photocopiers. This was before the Internet. This is when, you know, a poster was a professionally done thing, and there might only be five or ten of them on a bulletin board, and everyone on campus noticed it. It was a big thing, and he saw his, his photo there and, and was horrified, and so he, he reached out when no one was looking that evening and took it down and rolled it up and took it home with him. He was a relatively new believer himself. Um, You can just almost imagine his heart beating rapidly that night as he tried to pray and tried to think about this situation. You can imagine the beads of sweat forming around his forehead. You could feel the thud in his abdomen as anxiety kicked in and overcame him. Uh, You can imagine, you know, as he tried to sleep that night, the faces of all his tenured colleagues looking at him disdainfully with disgust as they saw this flyer, as they realized that he was one of these people who loved Jesus. It was a secular university. What would they think of him? Would it harm his tenure chances? It was a dark night of the soul. He was overcome with troubling thoughts, and and so he, he prayed and then slept on it. And the next morning, Ken Elzinga got up, and after he had prayed, he knew what he needed to do. He went back to campus early that morning before anyone else would arrive. He smoothed out the poster he had taken down, and he carefully put it back up, displaying it prominently on the bulletin board, because after hours of soul-searching, he concluded that his life was not about his professional career ambition. It was about being faithful in his service to Jesus. And from that point on, Ken said, being private about my faith would never again be an option. A lot of followers of Jesus have faced much tougher things. They've faced imprisonment, torture, or death for actions like Ken took. 
You think of those Egyptian Christians on the beach in Libya a couple years ago who were murdered. All they had to do was deny Jesus to live, and yet every one of them faced their death at the hands of the Islamic State, naming the name of Jesus as their rescuer. Ken Elzinga risked the loss of a life he wanted, risking his tenure, risking the respect of his colleagues, and yet in the four decades since that time, Ken Elzinga has been named Professor of the Year multiple times. He is the Robert C. Taylor Professor of Economics. That's one of those professorships that has a name attached to it, and those are the, those are the good ones. Um, there's also another professorship that's being named after him currently, and he remains high in demand as a speaker, and yet he will tell you that only serving one master, Jesus, who's his only Lord, has been liberating for him. Simply having an audience of one, it clarified the reality of what he really was living for, and it gave him a peace and a boldness that was hard to imagine. That is gospel boldness. Thank you. Are you asking God to give you that kind of boldness? This is how Peter had gained such boldness. It was verse 8. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he spoke to them in boldness. Look at what the Christians were praying for. In verse 29, they've been told not to speak in Jesus' name, and so they don't ask for comfort. They don't ask for persecution to go away. They don't ask for God to change the hearts of the leaders. They go and they bow down before God, and what they start doing is they start worshiping God. You, Lord, have made the earth and the heavens and everything in it, and they, they cry out, and what do they ask for? They ask for boldness. Verse 29, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And then after they prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Are you seeking that from Jesus? Are you asking that from your God? Lord, I'm not asking for an easy life. I'm asking for the boldness to represent you before my friends and neighbors and colleagues and members of my family. And in response, God gave them what they asked for. In a 2007 edition of Newsweek, uh, author and radio personality Garrison Keillor was asked to choose what he considered the five most important books in human history. And some readers were a little surprised to find that he ranked the book of Acts from the New Testament number one on his list. He offered this concise but potent summation he said the flames lit on their little heads and bravely and dangerously they went onward. This was the moment when God empowered his people to name Jesus at the time when it was most fragile, when it was just a handful of Jewish followers of Jesus and all the pressure of their state and culture and friends and families and social networks were trying to shut them down. It's the point at which the fire of God fell on them, not a physical fire, but a spiritual fire that gave them boldness, confidence in the face of opposition, a readiness to face whatever may come. God emboldened them to love, to live, to die for the truth, to die for Jesus, and more so, to live for him. See, God doesn't fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you can have great emotional experiences on which you can base your assurance of salvation. Uh, that's not the purpose. Your assurance of salvation is the same. We say it every single week in the sermon. We say it every single week at the Lord's table. The assurance of grace that you have is the objective promise of God in Jesus. 
But when the Spirit of God comes on you, it is for the sake of mission, to empower you to not only worship Jesus and live as His people, but to name Him and serve Him publicly, whatever may come. Are you asking Him for this kind of boldness? You know, they could see it. There was something supernatural here that the Jewish leaders, verse 13, perceived that these were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. And yet the power of God came. So how can we rise to such a challenge? You look at the historical record in the book of Acts, and you see how those early Jewish followers of Jesus rose to the challenge. They turned to him and worshipped him because their gaze was not on themselves or their opponents. Their gaze was on their God. They cried out, Lord, you're the sovereign Lord. They named him as one who's in control of everything. Even saying in verse 28 that when Jesus was murdered, it was because God had willed it. They knew that God was in control, that he is the sovereign Lord. They remembered Jesus, what he had said about the hairs of your head being numbered. They remembered Jesus saying that a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without the will of my Father in heaven. And they remembered that he had told them that you, my followers, are worth more than many sparrows. They knew their God. They knew who he was. They knew he was the Lord. And then they cried out to him, and the ground shook, and they had this confirmation that that the Lord had heard them, that this crucial moment in the history of the church, Jesus had indeed ascended to heaven and was at the right hand of the Father and that the prayer offered in his name was indeed heard and that he would empower them with the boldness that they sought. They knew their God, and yet their God also knew them. See, it was written on their faces. These Jewish leaders are looking at these Jewish followers of Jesus. It says that they recognized in verse 13 that they had been with Jesus. And I don't think that's saying that they recognized their faces. I think they were hearing these men speak. They were seeing the countenance on their face. And what they were seeing looked a lot like Jesus. Because when Jesus rescues you, he brings you into his family And it changes you as the weight of your sin is lifted off, as as the shame is taken off your shoulders, and Jesus carries that to the cross for you. As you gain the confidence of being sons and daughters of God, as you experience the freedom of not having to prove yourself any longer, as you've been with Jesus, they could see these folks have been affected by Jesus. This Jesus disease is all over them. They're smiling and ready to go to their deaths for Jesus. They could see it, and they knew that, that salvation is found in no one else, that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he had actually saved them, not to make them savable, but to actually accomplish that salvation, that what we had so much of, all of our guilt and our shame, had been transferred from us to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus had paid the penalty for our guilt and paid it completely. And with God, there is no double jeopardy. It has been tried. It has been convicted. The sentence has been carried out and there is no double jeopardy. You will never be brought to trial again. That means that for you who have Jesus, your judgment day has been transferred from the future to the past. It's already done. It's already finished. It's what Jesus said on the cross. And then the righteousness of Jesus credited to you so that you can be clothed not with your own resume, but with his resume. That's the power of the gospel, and it was written all over their faces. They looked to God, and God looked upon them. They knew their God, his power and salvation. And their God knew them and loved them, just as he loves you and washes you 
and is pleased with you now. Speak to him strongly and directly. The voice was not an audible voice, but nevertheless he knew he had heard it distinctly. Even while blood gushed from his face, the voice was speaking to him. It was around him. It was inside of him. And it was speaking directly at him as he bled. Speak to him strongly and directly and do not be afraid. Pastor Ibrahim had never before nor since heard a voice quite like this. He sensed it to be the voice of Jesus right there on the Syrian border, surrounded by Sunni Muslims, many of them deeply religious. The Voice of the Martyrs recently published the account of this Arab Christian pastor who works with refugees along the Syrian border. And as he helped refugees fleeing the war and violence in Syria, Ibrahim often shared his faith in Isa, Arabic for Jesus, and that Jesus forgives sins committed against God. And many times he had been threatened. Many times he had been warned because this was heresy for most of those around him. But last year, the threats began to escalate because as the Islamic State, the caliphate, has been collapsing, many of its young warriors have been seeking refuge. They've been seeking escape. They may shave their beard, blend in with other refugees, try and make it to the border, try to make it out of Syria. These are extremists who have enslaved Yazidi women, who have murdered religious minorities, who beat and torture fellow Muslims for improper clothing or for smoking cigarettes or possessing a cell phone. And and Pastor Ibrahim had worried about his personal safety and he was worried about his family and about the church he served there at the border. The risks were increasing. His anxiety was palpable, always just there beneath the surface. You can almost imagine the beads of perspiration, the, 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 the twitch of a muscle in his face, the nervous ticks, his hands clasped together, balled together tightly, one thumb stroking over the other anxiously. It just wasn't safe to represent Jesus at the Syrian border. And yet Pastor Abraham prayed his fears. Again and again he asked the Lord for strength, for boldness, but in all of his prayers the fear persisted. And one day last year in 2016 he was working outside his house with an electrical saw and that's when something happened. The power saw spinning blade suddenly popped off and it flew toward Ibrahim's face and the blade caught him in the corner of his mouth and soon there was blood everywhere. It was just a small gash, but it could have been so close. Had the blade hit a few inches lower, it could have hit his his jugular and bled him to death instantly. Had it gone a little bit higher, it would have blinded him or worse. And he stood in the shock of that moment, applying pressure to staunch the blood that flowed from his mouth. And it's then that it began that he says he heard this voice speaking to him, a voice of absolute goodness, a voice of absolute love, saying, I'm in control of when your life will end. Do not be afraid. And in a moment, Abraham's fears dissolved. It was while Abraham nursed this wound that he started to get back to work. And that's when Fadi appeared at Abraham's house. Though Fadi was a young man, he'd been a soldier with the Islamic State in Syria. He was an extremist and he was exactly what Abraham had most feared. So Abraham invited Fadi inside his home. He offered him a place to be seated. Perhaps it, it was 
while he was preparing the tea, that Abraham heard the words surrounding him again, speaking inside of him, that voice of love speaking to his spirit, speak to him strongly and directly, do not fear. A boldness came over Abraham as he told Fadi that what he had followed and done these years in the caliphate of the Islamic State was not from God. And at these words, Fadi began shaking uncontrollably. He was a young man, but his muscles were convulsing. His face was contorting. A feverish look of dread hung about the young man. And Abraham came close beside him. He put his arm around the young man. He spoke to him. He said, God is here beside you now. And he is putting his hand on your shoulder. And he's asking you, what is it that you want? Burdened with visions of horror that we can only imagine, the blood he'd shed, the lives he'd taken, the horrors and atrocities he had witnessed, Fadi replied as tears formed in his eyes, and he said, I want, I want salvation. Abraham looked at him and said, Jesus will forgive you sins. Fadi began to weep, and Abraham sat with him that evening and prayed with him before he left. A week later, Fadi returned to Abraham's home. He wanted to tell Abraham about a dream he had had, which he considered a vision. In a, in a dream that night, he had dreamt that Abraham had given him an envelope, and out of that envelope flowed red blood gushing to the floor. And he, he, he looked at Abraham in the dream, and in the dream, Abraham said, Do not be afraid of the blood. The blood is good. And as Fadi shared this dream, he was afraid that the dream was a portent that either he or Abraham was going to die that day. And so Abraham sat him down and explained to him this Islamic State extremist who had murdered in the name of God, who had wanted the death of Christians. He explained to him about the blood of Jesus that can wash him, even him, of his murders, of his immorality, of his evil, of the injustice, that the blood of Jesus can cover even his sins. Last December, Fadi was baptized in Abraham's church. And he continues to come to Abraham for mentoring and discipleship. Now Fadi's wife is also a follower of Isa, a follower of Jesus. And Fadi is actively at work in a refugee camp telling his fellow refugees about the blood of Jesus that forgave a soldier of the caliphate of the Islamic State, the blood of Jesus who is alive and loves to welcome sinners like us into his family, to heal, to forgive, to love, to set free, and to send us out with the spirit of boldness to tell the world about the power of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you as we worship your Father. And we ask that by your Spirit you would fill us with boldness, that we would not cower, but that we would know that our Redeemer lives and that he is able to rescue us. And should we face even death, you, our Lord, are able to raise the dead. For we look to that day when you will make everything right. Until that day, Lord, we wait for you. And we come to you at your table to receive of your grace your flesh and your blood represented here for us. We consecrate to you now the elements on this table, Lord, as we proclaim the death of Christ until he returns. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.